0: But for those of you uh, joining us in Malachi for the first time, we've seen that uh, Malachi is, is set quite late on in the story of God's people in the Old Testament. God's people, a long, long time ago, centuries ago, were rescued from slavery in the land of Egypt, brought into their own land, which they were given by God. But in that land, they sinned against God. They forgot about him. They didn't remember him to worship him rightly or to observe his laws. And after repeated warnings through many prophets over many years, God allowed his people to be taken into exile. First the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. And most distressingly, the temple of God in Jerusalem was destroyed. Well, that was some time ago by the time we get to Malachi. And things have moved on. The people, some of them, a small remnant of the people of the southern kingdom of Judah, have been allowed to return to their land. And they have returned. And they've rebuilt the temple. And they've reinstituted the worship of God as commanded in the law of Moses. They may even, by this stage, have rebuilt the city walls. Chronology is a little bit unclear. But, what we've seen throughout the book of Malachi... Is that the people of Judah, the returned people of Judah, far from rejoicing in God's blessings, are disillusioned and disappointed. Because, after all, God had promised better things than this. Where was the great king of Israel? Where was freedom? Where was God's glory shining forth before the nations? In fact, the tiny rump of Judah was not even an independent state, just a titchy province of a big empire which dwarfed it for magnificence and power and splendor. So the people are disappointed. And as we go through Malachi, he addresses them on God's behalf and he frames it in a series of, if you like, discourses between the people and God. Often God levels a charge against the people. They respond, and God responds back. Well, well this is, is slightly different, this bit. In this one, Malachi, in his own person, to begin with, addresses his fellow Jews, the people of Judah, alongside him. Because he himself has a charge to bring against them. Verse 10... Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Being unfaithful is going to be the theme of these verses. Malachi has has two particular accusations of unfaithfulness to bring to bear on the people. Unfaithfulness. And he underlines this charge of unfaithfulness. Notice that it's unfaithfulness particularly to one another. We're not primarily talking here about being unfaithful to God, but the people of Judah being unfaithful to one another. But he underlines it by saying, don't we all have one father? The NIV here has capitalised that, assuming that it's talking about God as their father, um, although the footnote tells you that maybe it's not. And I think it's perhaps not. I think maybe Malachi is looking back to the origins of the nation of Judah and saying, don't we all come from one root? Maybe he has Abraham in mind. But then he goes on to say, and didn't one God create us? Wasn't it one God who called out this people to be his particular people? We're joined together, the people of Judah. They're joined together together both in terms of their biological descent and in terms of their calling from God. And yet, they are unfaithful to one another. And their unfaithfulness, we'll see, is not just personal or religious, but is is social and relational. Well, I've just tried to set Malachi a little bit in its context and you will have noticed that that context was a long time ago in a very different place. So to get what these verses are saying to us today, and I'm convinced they do have something to say to us today, what I want to do is firstly zoom, take us right back into Malachi's day and look at the two displays of unfaithfulness that he sees in Judah in his day. Then I want to uh, try to bridge the centuries and talk about two ways in which I don't think we can move very directly from these verses to an application to today. Then I want to talk about two ways in which I think we really can apply these verses to today. And then I want to round off by talking about Jesus. So that's where we're going, to, 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 Jesus. Um, So I hope you can follow that. So here we go, two displays of unfaithfulness. The first one, uh, in verses 11 and 12, really, is this, the people of Judah have been unfaithful by marrying idolatrous wives. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there are various prohibitions on who God's people can and cannot marry. There are various nations around them who are under God's curse. They are judged by God. The people are not allowed to marry them. And regularly, (coughs) the reason that is given is this, if you marry these people they will lead you astray to worship other gods just as they worship other gods they will lead you astray to worship other gods and Malachi says Judah has been unfaithful by doing exactly that marrying women who worship a foreign god literally daughters of a foreign god um, The rabbis apparently were keen on saying that the the man who marries an idolatrous woman becomes stepson to an idol, brings you into a relationship with an idol. And that is what they are doing. And that has two, two devastating effects that we see here. Firstly, Judah has desecrated the sanctuary that the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. The temple, the centre of Judah's worship of the God who entered into covenant with their forefathers centuries before, is desecrated, is made an unclean thing by the presence of these marriages amongst the people. Now why is that? Is it just that bringing these idolaters into the proximity of the temple necessarily makes it unclean? It could be. Certainly, if you go back to the wilderness years in Exodus, you have the tabernacle in the center of the tent, a holy place for God's habitation, and around it, God's people arrayed as if like a guard around it. Only they could be gathered around God's tabernacle. Or might it just be because of what you are saying when you marry an idolatrous woman in Malachi's day? You would be saying, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what God you worship. I'm okay with it either way. And in saying that, you say of of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel who reveals himself throughout the Old Testament, you say of him... He's basically just another option, like the others. I've got this God, my wife's got another God. It's cool. We can all just rub along together. Now it's really clear, the people um, who are being accused here have not given up bringing offerings to the Lord. That's right there at the end of verse 12. They're still bringing offerings to the Lord, But to bring offerings in that state of mind, as if God were just one of the gods on the menu, as if it didn't matter if you joined yourself to other gods as well, that is to make God's temple unclean. There's another thing though as well. Did you notice that the Lord will remove from the tents of Jacob Any man who engages in such a marriage. Now that is important. God is saying, whoever does this will no longer count as an Israelite. Their descendants will no longer be a part of the people of God. They are cut off from the covenant, cut off from the Lord. In other words, by contracting these marriages with idolatrous women by the way, I realise it's all a bit one-sided it's nothing about contracting marriages with idolatrous men sorry, that's just the way it is in Malachi's day by contracting these marriages these people are doing everything they can everything in their power to destroy Judah as the distinctive people of God to make them Just another nation with just another God. Whose descendants are just another people. I guess they probably didn't plan to do that. They just wanted to marry people. But they were careless. Careless about what it really meant to be God's people. So there's one. They were unfaithful by marrying idolatrous wives. Notice, that, is, that comes under Malachi's heading of unfaithfulness to one another because they are breaking up the people. What they are doing has an impact on the people of Judah as a whole. Second thing, they are divorcing legitimate wives. The way Malachi sets this up, they flood the Lord's altar with tears weep and wail because he no longer looks with favour on their offerings or accepts them with pleasure here are the people of Judah lined up before the Lord why does he not hear our prayers why are we not restored more fully why they ask and Malachi has the answer it's because you've divorced your wives it is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth you have been unfaithful to her So she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Marriage covenant. That word covenant has just enormous weight in the Old Testament because most often it is used to describe the relationship between the God of Israel and his people. They have entered into a covenant. And by using it of marriage, Malachi puts a huge amount of weight onto that relationship. And yet, you, Judah, have been unfaithful. You've put away your wives. Hasn't the one God made you? You belong to Him in body and spirit. You belong to Him. How can you be unfaithful to your wife? And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. Godly offspring. You see, by divorcing legitimate wives, the people of Judah are thwarting God's plan for marriage, which is to bring offspring into the world, to bring children into the world. They are, again, denying Judah's position as God's unique covenant partner by ignoring the implications of the covenant of marriage. And they're thwarting God's redemptive purpose through Israel. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there's a huge emphasis on offspring. And one of the reasons is that right back in Genesis 3, you have that promise of the seed who will crush the serpent's head. And so all through the Old Testament, every child is not just, isn't it lovely that there's a new baby in the world, but is also might it be hugely significant. And by divorcing their Israelite wives, these men are basically saying, I just don't want to be part of that program. I'm not interested in participating in God's purposes for this nation. Do you know what, again, that is probably not what they intended. They just weren't getting on with their wives. Again, very one-sided, sorry. But they probably just didn't see the link. They clearly took their relationship to God in some ways very seriously. There they were before his altar, weeping and asking why he hadn't answered them. They just didn't understand that there was a link between the way they took care of their covenant marital relationships And the way God saw the covenant relationship with his people. Just carelessness I guess. But criminal carelessness. And that's the prosecution that is going on here. If you hate and divorce your wife says the Lord. You do violence to the one you should protect. You have got it all wrong. And what we see here really is just the further unraveling of the unique fabric of the people of God caused by, it seems, the fact that they just don't think God is working. They've not seen the answers to their prayers. They've not seen the restoration that they hoped for. And so gradually they become careless about keeping God's ways. Careless about maintaining themselves as his people. Okay. There are the two aspects of unfaithfulness that I think we see going on in Malachi. Here are a couple of things that I think we ought not to pull out of those verses and apply directly to ourselves. Um, I I could be wrong, but this is what I think. I'm not wrong about at least one of them. Confident. First thing we really ought not to pull out of this um, is the emphasis on, on racial and ethnic purity, which is definitely present in these verses and in other similar passages in the later Old Testament. Yes, it was critical in that age when nation and deity were tied together When a God was a God of a particular people, it was critical that the Lord's people, Yahweh's people, the people of God, remain exclusively his people. Now what we see in the Old Testament is on the one hand an enormous barrier being built around those people. You must not marry these people. You must not make treaties or covenants with these people You must be pure. You must keep yourselves as Israel, as my people. On the other hand, what you see is God seemingly deliberately and somewhat provocatively poking holes in the barriers that he has erected so that foreigners can come in and be joined to God's people. And in so doing, God throughout the Old Testament points forward to the New Testament. When those barriers will come crashing down and in Jesus will be destroyed, so that all, Jew and Gentile, approach God on the same footing. So we can't now take that emphasis on purity and apply it to ourselves. I hope we're aware of that. Um, but I hope that also helps us when sometimes you, you encounter people who, who want to read the Old Testament and say, why don't you do this? Why is the Old Testament racist? Well, that appearance of racism, that appearance of preference for one people, is not entirely illusory, but it is preparatory. It is preparing the way for God's one people united from all nations around Christ, of which we, here, are a tiny little part. So, we shouldn't apply that emphasis directly to ourselves. Neither, I think, should we apply the emphasis on offspring and children, which is in these, in these verses. As I've said already, that was a uniquely Old Testament perspective, and it related specifically to the promise of the coming Messiah. I'm not saying that children aren't a blessing now, but they are not a blessing in this way. So I think we would be unwise to take this emphasis on children and apply it directly to ourselves. Amongst other things, the New Testament's pretty clear that in some ways the best thing for people to do is not to marry and have children so that they can focus on the things of the Lord. So there's a couple of things I think don't directly translate. But here are some things that I think, two things again, we're on our third pair of twos. Third pair of twos? That's rubbish, isn't it? Third pair. Uh, Here are some things which I think do translate and which we need to take seriously. First one is this. We need to recognise that faithlessness, unfaithfulness in one area of life, implies unfaithfulness in all areas of life. Unfaithfulness in one area of life implies unfaithfulness in all areas of life. In particular... What we see from these verses in Malachi is that we cannot be unfaithful in marital relationships or, I assume, in relationships with friends and colleagues and yet claim to be faithful in our relationship to God. It will not work. We can't draw a line across our lives and say, up here is stuff to do with God. (laughs) And down here is just human stuff. And then say, up here I will be the sort of person who keeps promises, is faithful, loves only God. And down here I will be the sort of person who is unfaithful to human beings. A person who is unfaithful down here is, by implication, unfaithful up here. And no matter how much the people of Judah came and wept before God's altar, For as long as they carried on, determined to live in an unfaithful way in their human relationships, they were also unfaithful in their relationship with God. Because God is interested in the whole of this. He doesn't draw a line across it and say, I'll worry about this bit up here, do what you want down there. Faithfulness, faithfulness to God and faithfulness to people go together hand in hand. If we ignore one, we are tacitly ignoring the other. Wonder what that means. Faithfulness is a funny concept. I guess we 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 have a, a clear idea of it, or a semi-clear idea of it, in the con- in the context of marriage. Mainly a negative idea. When we talk about faithfulness in marriage, we mainly mean not playing away. Faithfulness is obviously much more than that in the marriage context. It's devotion to the other person. It's not just saying I won't spend my energies on others. It's saying I will spend them on you. I guess we can develop that to other relationships, extrapolate to other relationships as well. One of the things that um, strikes me is that we culturally are very poor at simple things like keeping our word. We say we'll do things, but we don't do them. I know I'm I'm guilty of that, either because I overcommit or just because at the end of the day I didn't get around to it. But that is that is unfaithfulness. Maybe a trivial example of unfaithfulness. But if I can't be trusted there Am I really faithful to God? So there's there's one application to us. Recognize that unfaithfulness in one area implies unfaithfulness in all areas. And here's another one. We do need to maintain the purity of the church. That sort of ethnic religious purity that was going on in Malachi's day is not appropriate to us now. But Malachi's massive emphasis on the fact that God's people must maintain their distinctiveness, that is totally appropriate to us today. We must be, as God's people in the church, different. We must be distinct. We must be pure. Can I suggest that the way we go about that in our setting, here and now, is not so much by um, policing marriage, which um, the elders probably don't have, don't have that much time to do. Do we, do we have a marriage, police? No, we don't have a marriage, police. But it is by discipling and disciplining ourselves and one another. Actually, this is what faithfulness to one another in the church looks like. Remember, Malachi is slating the people of Judah for being unfaithful to one another. What would it look like, like for us as a church to be faithful to one another? Well, one of the things it would surely look like is that we would seek genuinely to build one another up. And that means we would seek to give one another the gospel. We would seek to minister the word of God to one another. So that we grow and change and so that we are kept from sin and so that we collectively and together display the purity of God to the world. That is what we're to do. And it matters. If Malachi makes anything clear, it is, it matters. And when we become careless about it, that can be death to our relationship with God. Don't know about you. I sometimes look back on on times earlier in my life when I feel I was much more zealous for this sort of thing, much more concerned for purity in my own life and in the church. And I guess a bit like the people in Malachi's day, over time that just sort of ebbs away a little bit. And stuff starts to get tolerated in our own lives and in our community, which perhaps ought not to be. And it seems like little things, like loose talk or crudeness or love of money. But those little things are the things which will kill our relationship with God if allowed to grow. So, brothers and sisters, my appeal to you if you're part of Modern Road Church here this evening is let's be faithful to one another and will you in particular be faithful to me by A, reminding me of the good news of what God has done for me in Jesus and B, when you see me in my life departing from that good news giving me a kick not necessarily physically although if that's what's required go for it only be aware that if you do I'll feel free to reciprocate (laughs) look let me finish with this the people of Malachi's day had no idea what was going on they thought they were seeking God They didn't understand that God wanted more from them than just their religion, or just their tears even. He wanted faithful relationships. Because faithful relationships across the people represented faithful relationship with God. That is what they wanted. That is what God wanted, sorry. And here's us. Here's us here today. And I think... We are unfaithful to one another for various reasons. Because we don't care as much about purity in the church as we do about comfort and people liking us, or because we don't have the time to invest in one another's lives, or because we say we're going to do stuff and then don't do it. I think we're unfaithful to one another, and I think we're unfaithful to God. What are we going to do? When you read a passage like this in Malachi, as I was reading this just this afternoon again, it just smacks me in the face. This is, this is us. We're unfaithful. What are we going to do? I'm excited and so, so desperately pleased that we can approach this from the other side of the cross with a view of Jesus who, unlike us, is faithful faithful to his people faithful to God with Jesus, who is faithful even unto death who is is faithful to us in being good to us even when we are faithless and is faithful on our behalf representing us before God So that he sees us as his faithful people. It doesn't mean we can just carry on living in any way we like because Jesus is faithful for us. It's better than that. It's better than that. Because Jesus is faithful for us and faithful to us, he allows us to repent, to change, not to carry on being like this. We don't have to. I think um, so often we represent repentance as um, the, the sort of the cost of following God. You know, following God is great. On the one hand, if you trust in Jesus, you get free forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God forever. That's great. The cost is, sadly, you do have to stop sinning. But it isn't like that. Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't our lives be better if we were faithful to one another? If we genuinely loved one another and then were genuinely faithful to God and loved him. Wouldn't that just be great? And the good news, the good news of the gospel is when Jesus died it was not only to take away punishment for our sin it was also to take away our sin because he is faithful we too can be faithful as we trust in him, as we look to him to change us, to work in us, to bring out his character in us so as we come to the Lord's table as we come to take bread and wine We're going to be remembering just how unfaithful we have been to one another and to God. But much more than that, so much more than that, that it sort of drowns it in this flood of moreness. We are going to be remembering the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sake bore the cross his body broken and his blood shed. So that we could live. Live forgiven, live changed as he pours his Holy Spirit out on us. So what we're going to do now is just take a few moments, maybe a couple of minutes in silence to prepare our hearts to confess before God our failings your faithfulness and to ask him for his forgiveness then I'm going to lead us in prayer